This is Tripwire Week in Review for week ending December 16th, 2022. I'm Martha Kocher with TREP, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS, commercial real estate, and CLO markets. I'm with Manis Clancy, Senior Managing Director, and Lonnie Henry, Head of Siri and Advisory Services. This week, big stock market swings as investors reacted to new data and the Fed adjusted interest rate forecasts, even as the 50 basis point rate hike was largely expected. In economic data, more signs of an economy cooling, consumer inflation slowed last month, retail sales dropped, and regional manufacturing activity showed weakness in December. Manus, the big investor reaction this week was to the Fed's so-called dot plot that sees a higher Fed funds target range. You have to ask yourself, what are you going to believe, your data parsing eyes or Jerome Powell? Isn't that the the narrative of the week? Uh, A lot of weak economic data this week, which at times had investors euphoric, only to be dismissed or squashed, if you will, by the remarks after the Fed release of the interest rate hike and the, the dot plot number. So let's review the week and talk about some of these wild swings. Tuesday, we saw a cooler than expected CPI number. The reaction was violent. There's no other way to describe it. In the moments after that print came out between 830 and 845, the NASDAQ was up 4.5%. Treasury yields were down 17, 18, 19 basis points across the board. Some bold analysts were saying, the interest rate hike end was here, that we would see a rate hike in December, and that would be it. Not long after that euphoria, the markets gave back a lot of those gains. Even though the markets were up on Tuesday, treasuries gave back a lot of their gains that they had witnessed in the first half hour, and stocks were only modestly higher. I think the NASDAQ was up about a point versus 4.5% right after the CPI number. So what's going on there? I think that fool me once, you know, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. I think they've seen this happen over and over and over again, where a equity rally is followed by Fed Chair Powell trying to take away the the punch bowl. And that's really what happened on Wednesday. So two o'clock comes on Wednesday, 50 basis point rate hike. Normally, matching expectations would lead to a collective shrug. But then he comes out and says, more rate hikes are going to be necessary. And by the way, dot plot is 5.1%, about 20 basis points higher than the previous high. The market spiral lower, and then today, weaker retail sales and probably a hangover from yesterday's dot plot sent the Dow down 1,000 points at one point. So the market seems to want to rally. It wants to see that rate hikes have ended. It wants to believe that the recession will be shallow. And standing in their way is, is the Fed chair at, at the moment. Yeah, Powell actually was quoted, Manis, as saying, I don't think anyone knows whether we're going to have a recession or not. And if we do, whether it's going to be a deep one or not, it's not knowable. That was his quote. The historical record cautions strongly against prematurely loosening policy. We will stay the course until the job is done. So it's really interesting. I think his position has kind of been unwavering lately, even though CPI numbers and other things maybe look favorable. So it'll be interesting to see if he can continue to keep everyone in line and continue until whatever they decide the job is done means. 
Uh, Seeking Alpha had some commentary this week that echoes what you said, man. As the Fed handed the market a surprise on Wednesday, they increased the 2023 terminal rate forecast by 50 basis points, basically 5.1% for all of 23. And on top of that, raised unemployment and inflation forecasts while lowering their GDP forecast. More to come on that month to month. feel like they haven't done enough to uh, to tame inflation to their liking at this point. So have a couple of other noteworthy stories this week. On the labor jobs front, looks like the number of Americans that applied for unemployment benefits, at least in early December, fell to a, a three-month low of 211,000. And then on the housing front, this was the first week in a while that we actually have seen mortgage application volume inching up. So applications rose 3.2% last week as compared to the previous week. That's according to the Mortgage Bankers Association. Some other interesting uh, news on the housing front, it looks like investors are pulling out of the flipping market. No surprise um, as profits are drying up. So as home prices are you know, being reset, uh, the flipping market has definitely, the margins have slimmed there. So in the third quarter, it looked like gross profit for flippers on the whole fell 18.4% from the previous quarter. And that's about 7.5% of third quarter home sales were flips, uh, which is still a historically high number, but down from 8.2% in the uh, the second quarter. So uh, something to keep an eye on there. And then lastly, something that got some, some headline space this week, Lennar Corp, which is one of the, the largest U.S. home builders, basically trying to sell thousands of their homes to rental landlords because their you know traditional home buyer business has slowed down. So I think the number in the story was somewhere around 5,000 homes in the inventory that they're trying to sell off, which is interesting for a couple of reasons. One, they have a single family rental or build to rent platform at Lennar. Um, they said that these homes were not going to be marketed in that format. This was really looking for an outside investment group or outside investors to buy these properties and not for them to take down uh, in their single family rental platform. So more to come on that. Cue up the TREP blog alert, Haley, because it actually ties in with a single family rental blog that we just released this week, where we talk a little bit around single-family rental issuance uh, for 22 is up significantly compared to historical norms, but we've really seen a slowdown recently. And so I think the pressures, uh, the downward pressures of prices at the home buyer level are being felt not just on individual transactions, but also on the single-family rental, build-to-rent type of uh, arrangement. You know, two other observations on the data this week, one good, maybe one bad. You know, we, we could debate whether the latter one is bad or not. But on the first point, good week for borrowers, another substantial decline in interest rates. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, the 10-year is now down about 80 basis points from its peak, give or, give or take. Uh, the two-year, I think, is about 50, 55 basis points below its peak. So borrowing costs uh, have been falling. That's, that's good news for people that want to buy homes. Good news for CRE owners that have to refinance their debt or face the prospect of buying an interest rate cap all to the good, you know, to the to the bad, if you will. I, I'm a guy that I tend to watch the bond markets much more closely than I do the stock market. For me, the stock market is an action movie, you know, where things happen really quickly and lightning pace and, and the bond market's more of a documentary. And it's a little bit more thought-provoking. And I think what you're seeing in the 
bond market right now is greater signs that we are slowing faster than maybe the Fed thinks uh, with this rate decline this week. And also that the bumpiness ahead, meaning the hardness of the landing, may be more severe than people are confronting. The negative, the inversion now between the two and the 10 uh, got wider again this week, which is indicative of people thinking the trough will be deeper. And like I said, when I'm watching tea leaves, that resonates more for me than a 700 up day followed by a 700 down day. Just my two cents, Lonnie. Martha, feel free to challenge that. I think that was the big debate this week. And a lot of analysts and, uh, and other uh, predictors talking about what it means for 2023. And you see two of the economic data prints that came out, the retail sales number and the inflation number are two factors that we know the Fed was watching. The third is jobs and jobs just seems to be holding and does not really move much. So there's a lot of conjecture about what that means and how long uh, the Fed will wait before uh, they make any, any further actions. Yeah, the jobs news is a perplexing one or the job trajectory, whatever you want to call it. Because clearly the economy has been of concern since about June with higher inflation. I think that if you were thinking of starting a business or, add, or thinking of adding hours or trying to grow, that kind of came and went by the summer. Uh, at the same time, you've seen enormous numbers of tech layoffs. So where the strength is coming from is a little perplexing to me. I don't quite get it. I know that in the numbers, there's a lot of seasonality that goes into these numbers, but I am far from an expert on these. I have to say that I am a little bit stumped by why we haven't seen slightly higher unemployment claims or more of an uptick in the unemployment number. Maybe it's just too soon. I did want to mention one other bit of retail news, and that was Ohio-based fabric craft retailer Joanne, which obviously had uh, an announcement when they reported on Monday that they were going to be holding back on their dividend payments. You know, never a good look when that happens. Their share price was trading under $5. It makes you wonder how much liquidity they have. We've talked ad nauseum on this podcast about how great the performance has been among those malls that have Joann's or Michael's or Burlington or Marshall's. Maybe this is the first kink in the armor. Who knows? But anytime you're looking to conserve cash, uh, it is a worry. As a refresher uh, to our clients, the biggest risk for something like this is trying to conserve liquidity becomes eventually a bankruptcy filing. And Lonnie could talk about that uh, as he has before about what happens then but it does give the retailer the chance to reject leases. And we know what that does, um, or we know what that has done in the past with Sears uh, and other firms that have gone through the process, but survived Sears, JCPenney and so forth. Yeah, I think they mentioned in this that they're hoping to cut about 200 million in cost by fiscal 25. They referred to supply chain product overhead and operating expenses. And as we know, the real estate cost for some of these firms can be, you know, fairly significant. So I think it's valid, Manus, at this point to uh, have a little, you know, cause for concern. I did want to mention too, I saw an article this week, this is actually provided by our own Rob Jordan, 
that Lululemon is sitting on $1.7 billion worth of unsold merchandise, which is up about 85% from this time last year. So if you're in the market for some Lululemon yoga pants, maybe now's the time to uh, to make those holiday gift purchases. Lonnie may have to go from making his own clothes to working in the uh, athleisure look. I don't know. <laughs> what do you think, Lonnie? I think nobody wants to see me in some Lululemon yoga pants. That's what I think. By the way, for clients out there that are listening but may not have read our tripwire this week, we did put together a list of loans that are backed by retail where Joanne is a top five tenant. If you want to get ahead of your uh, exposure to Joanne stores, if you're worried about potential more bumpiness for the firm going down the road, we have it. The exposure is substantial, more than 100 loans, if I remember correctly, that have uh, Joanne as a top five tenant. All right, let's start with office. And I know last week we talked about an office conversion story. We have another one. This one is actually an acquisition that was reported a few months ago, but more details came out about the firm that wants to convert this into a multifamily property. Yeah, so this is a story. This is a property that traded back in May for about $228 million for some large D.C. office buildings, two, two prominent buildings on the northern edge of DuPont Circle. So they were purchased uh, by a Philadelphia-based multifamily development firm, Post Brothers, and they're really working towards getting these converted into multifamily residential developments. Uh, the idea here is they take the two buildings that were built in the 1950s, develop them with upwards of about 500 apartments, retain first floor or what they're calling ground floor retail, and leverage this into kind of that, what we've often talked about office to residential conversion. This would be one that would be really headline worthy if they're able to get this approved and get this uh, you know started. So I know it's been a topic for us the last couple of weeks. And it's interesting, this one jumped out at us because it's something that actually looks like it's, you know, progressing towards, um, you know, at least getting the green light to maybe start the process here. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out up here in Westchester, New York, where I am for the holidays. They're doing that sporadically in former bank spaces and very labor intensive, very capital intensive. Uh, but I think if you pull it off, you know, you make a home run because you're buying these vacant buildings for a song. Um, with a lot of upside and often great locations. So let's move on. We've got a number of stories in office that we have to plow through, but let's start with the green stories on an up note. The green shoots. Here we go. Uh, this first one from Keith Schubert of the Minneapolis St. Paul Business Journal. Piper Sandler is moving its headquarters to the North Loop area of Minneapolis they are going to take on about 115,000 square feet at a new Heinz development, a 15-year lease. They will be moving from a slightly bigger space at the U.S. Bancor Center at 800 Nicolette Mall. So I know that people that are listening carefully are saying, why is this a green shoot if they're downsizing from 125,000 square feet to 115? Uh, we put it in the green category because the firm was thinking about leaving Minneapolis altogether. So the fact that they're staying in the city is a great sign. And it comes at a time where Minneapolis has seen a wave of departures either in Minneapolis proper or in the suburbs of Egan, Minnetonka, and others. So good news there. Glad to see that for the Twin Cities. In New York today, or New York this week, 
this came from one of our listeners and Trepwire readers. The $231 million 260-261 Madison Avenue loan uh, has been refinanced with a new $326 million loan. This is a pair of buildings that are near Grand Central, uh, older stock, and being refinanced into substantially more debt than they had before. In addition, this loan was supposed to mature a few months ago, the existing loan, and failed to pay off. So getting new debt, getting substantially more debt for an older office in New York, I think is a really, really nice sign for a market for which there is a great deal of uncertainty. Yeah, I would say the uh, the New York office refinance, I don't know if we have a category better than green shoot, but that one would qualify for it. Um, I think that's a really good story um, and hopefully maybe a sign of some renewed interest in those properties in that particular market. You know, you never know on these, sometimes there could be a sponsor or somebody that backs these deals that are able to, to, to pull some strings and get a deal done, but this is a, a really good, good story. Now I'll ask you this, Lonnie and Martha, you know, and maybe I should ask it for our, our broader audience out there because it, it did pique my interest when I saw that this loan got done. We're now two or three years away from local law 97 passing. And maybe our, maybe some of our listeners can weigh in on this and, and tell us how they're adjusting their models. But I'm wondering if you're underwriting this thing, or do you now have a line item for local law 97? And if so, how do you handicap this thing? What kind of number do you put in there for something that is brand new and for which the metrics just don't exist? Or do you just kind of assume this will be negotiated away before 2025. What do you think? Yeah, I think if you're, it's interesting. I, I, I've asked the question on a couple of different, um, you know, roundtables or other things that I participated in. And it seems like the response has been fairly laissez-faire. Like people are not paying that much attention to it from an underwriting perspective. Like logically my brain says it should be a bigger deal. I mean, if you're a 19... You know, less less than two thousand built building, you're probably going to have a hard time complying with the carbon footprint, you know, output, and you're going to see fines. So I think to your point, like there has to be some sort of an additional line item to account for that. But I, I haven't seen anyone that's really been like super worried about that. So I, I definitely think this is one where, if you're a listener and you have some some insight on this, we would definitely love to get educated about it because it has the potential. Uh, to impact a large number. We've actually put a couple of research pieces out about this where we've measured the number of buildings that could potentially be impacted by this in New York. And it's not uh, it's not a small number. Local law 97 is a law that requires you to comply with emission thresholds for certain square footage. And if you do not comply, you will be uh, hit with a fine. Or I think the alternative is you can pay some type of, I'll call it a tax with air quotes as a, as a charge, if you cannot have the building comply with, uh, with the target emission threshold. And that's for New York City only right now. Maybe in a different podcast, we could talk about how this might impact the New York condo slash co-op market, because so many of those in New York are of small size, right? 15 to 30 units that if you're going to be hit with this big fine and that turns into an assessment of your building, what does that do to the 
you know, the base, do people look to move out of the city? Do they just suck it up and pay these fines? I don't think anybody in that world has really digested what's coming at them yet. And that could be impactful as well. So time will tell. Moving on to other office stuff, uh, another green shoot in Fremont, California, life science startup, Personalis, if I'm pronouncing that uh, correctly, they make cancer-fighting drugs. They are tripling their space while moving from Menlo Park to Fremont, taking 100,000 square feet in that city. Great news there. In New York, this is a story we've been following quite a bit. It pertains to 350 Park Avenue. Property is owned by Vernado. Top tenant is Citadel. The loan went to special servicing last month. Special servicing notes erroneously said the loan was facing imminent default. Uh, Vornado pushed back on that. But what they were facing, without a doubt, was the potential expiration of the Citadel lease, which made this big loan, this big Park Avenue, Midtown Manhattan loan, one to watch. Vernado and Citadel came out this week with Citadel taking on a master lease that will pay $36 million a year in, in lease payments to the property. So it takes the risk of Citadel leaving off the table. They have also signed an option agreement, which will give the two firms and along with another, I think it was Rudin, the ability to co-develop a tower that is even bigger than 350 Park. In fact, the tower they contemplate is 1.7 square million feet and will take up an entire block area of Midtown Manhattan should they go ahead and do this. So very complex deal. Um, if you want our Trepwire story about this, we're happy to send it along, but it's also been covered by Commercial Observer and others uh, if you want to see it and get more details around it. But a loan that was at risk at one point now seems to have had that risk removed. We had a lot of nice uh, green shoots, but we're going to go on to, uh, I'm going to call this category the neutral category because there's uh, there's mixed there's mixed greens in there. Yeah, so this, uh, the first one here is a Washington Business Journal uh, news release. It talks about George Washington University purchasing the Foggy Bottom Building from the World Bank. So the university actually had an option to purchase the building. Um, which they exercised. So they acquired about a 465,000 square foot building at 619th Street. And this is from the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, which is an arm of the World Bank. The sales price wasn't disclosed, but the what they reported as the 2023 assessed value of 231.6 million was listed in the deed, generated about $6 million in recording taxes. Uh, the interesting nugget here is that the property has a long-term lease in place with the uh, General Services Administration. So they have a lease on the building through 2028. The university didn't state that they had any type of uh, intended use for the building beyond the lease term. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see what happens there. But the GSA pays about $23 million a year on the lease for that building. So it's interesting. We've had a, a listener, I believe it was Michael L that had reached out a couple of times around some GSA specific data. So we wanted to bring this story up. We felt like that would be something uh, he'd find interesting. We have more GSA tenant level data in our system than we do any other tenant. So in the TREP data, 
we track the top five tenants across all multi-tenant buildings, whether it be office, retail, or industrial. And the GSA is by far the uh, the largest tenant uh, that we have in the database. So if, if anyone else is interested, uh, we can provide some really good deep granular intel on the uh, the GSA. Yes, I'm always worried about those GSA that someday we'll get a, you know, a belt tightener in the uh, in the White House, uh, and that will mean cutting down on space substantially, which would impact landlords quite a bit. But you know, I, I don't watch Washington machinations very much. But what I've heard is that they've passed another, what is it, omnibus spending bill that uh, you know is just extraordinarily large. So I guess belt tightening was not uh, on the agenda for December 2022. So all the GSA landlords, you could probably take a, a big exhale uh, over that. It's just my guess. Going to another mixed green story uh, in Manhattan, the New York Post, Steve Quozo noted that law firm Froel and Mooring had signed on for 70,000 square feet at 2 Manhattan West. The firm will be moving from 590 Madison Avenue in Midtown. That latter property is probably one to watch. It backs $650 million in CMBS debt spread across three 2015 deals. The Kroll and Mooring lease is only 10% of the square footage uh, at 590 Madison. But we had previously noted that IBM was 12% of the space was also a candidate to leave when their lease ends in 2025. So good news for uh, two Manhattan West, not so good news for 590 Madison, hence the mixed green categorization. In the crabgrass category, back to Minneapolis, Kavita Kumar of the Minneapolis Star Tribune reported that Ameriprise Financial will be exiting its headquarters in downtown Minneapolis it will be consolidating offices nearby. The current headquarters uh, is almost a million square feet. So 960,000 square feet, and they will be reducing their square footage overall in the city to substantially less than that. So uh, not great news there. In San Antonio, James McCandless of the San Antonio Business Journal noted that USAA uh, will be pulling out of the downtown San Antonio office market by the end of 2022. They will be leaving the 300 convent building where they've been for many years and we'll be putting that on the sublease market. Yeah, Manus, on the USAA story, uh, they were actually, their CEO, uh, Wayne Peacock, was quoted as saying that nationally their firm had exited more than 10% of their real estate footprint over the past couple of years, totaling nearly 1.1 million square feet with an average annual savings of roughly $31 million. So just more information around CEOs and how they're viewing real estate in their portfolio with this hybrid work environment. You know, some in some instances, you know, it really is a way for them to see significant cost savings. So $31 million over 1.1 million square feet for the downsizing at USAA. Yeah, I think that's only magnified at a time when earnings are getting squeezed, right? That's that's the short story. For banks, their cost of lending is going up perhaps even more steeply than their, their ability to lend, right? So you could be getting your margins cut. Stocks in general are down. And I think that, you know, if we were looking at a soaring stock market, and earnings growing across the board, across every industry, 
I think this pressure would be muted. But I think that these CEOs between travel and conference attendance and amenities and real estate will look for every opportunity to cut where they can to keep their share price stable or higher. So it doesn't accrete or accrue very well for the, uh, you know, the leasing community in the office space. You know, that, that's for sure. In Pittsburgh, moving on, Tim Schooley and Nate Dowdy of the Pittsburgh Business Times noted that Aurora Innovation was putting 110,000 square feet up for sublease in the Crucible building. Met of Platforms confirmed that was giving up its space both in Fremont um, on Dumbarton Circle, uh, 115,000 square feet there, and 430,000 square feet at 181 Fremont in San Francisco up for sublease. Meta has requested the opportunity to terminate that lease. Whether that will be uh, permitted or not remains to be seen. Um, the Fremont lease, at least, had been rumored for a while. This is confirmation that they will be pulling out of that location as well. Well, we kicked off the pod talking about some retail news. Let's move on to a couple more retail stories that we have. This is a big remittance week for those um, outside of the CMBS market. It is the week in the month, in the middle of the month, where uh, data on tens of thousands of loans come through. You get new readings on where values have been cut, where losses have been taken, where loans have become delinquent. Thus far in the retail space, the results have been benign, but we have a lot more data to go. So we'll have more of that next week. The two stories we have on the retail front are both green shoots. Uh, one is the Antelope Valley Mall in Palmdale, California, has been sold for $60 million to the Bridge Group and Steerpoint Capital. Why is that a green shoot? Well, anytime somebody's paying more than 20 or $30 million for a mall, it's a good sign, right? Even if this mall is valued at no more than it was 10 years ago, somebody willing to put $60 million into a property is a good sign. Elsewhere, uh, CMBX 7 mall loan, Northridge Mall, was paid off ahead of its June 2023 maturity date. The collateral has nearly 600,000 square feet in Salinas, CA. The loan made up more than 10% of a 2013 deal, which was part of CMBX 7. The loan has been a good performer. 2021 DSER was 2.67 for H1 2022, 3.28. And these stories go to show that not every mall story is a disaster. You know, these things find ways to muddle through and uh, the higher the DSER, the lower the leverage, the more likelihood the story will have a happy ending. Yeah, so some other interesting uh, retail news, Amazon, which is, you know, in the movie business, they have uh, Prime Video and, and their own original content, now has entered into the movie theater business, too. So they opened up a brick and mortar theater in Culver City. Unclear at this point if they're going to continue this expansion or if this is kind of a one-off thing. You know, it's worth noting they also opened its first uh, clothing store this year in the uh, Americana at Brand in Glendale. So Amazon trying to be all things everywhere. All right, shout outs. First one is from Jean KB. That is, yes, my French pronunciation, which uh, he wrote. For Manus's pronunciation series, he wanted to mention that his name is pronounced in the French way. So I'm hoping I didn't add my 
normally Spanish accented French sound? Jean has been in my vocabulary for a long time. My favorite NHL hockey player as a kid was Jean Rattel. Still remember him fondly as a high scoring New York Ranger. So that's one I will never get wrong. Excellent. And he did ask us a question about uh, 160 Water Street. So we'll send him a response on that. Brian B had uh, some comments about the Hilton that's part of a similar debt acquired by JP Morgan. And uh, that was a foreclosure auction, I think, that um, they were referring to. Josh C sent us an email looking for bank earnings and said that we are all great. He catches every episode and loves to replay older episodes. Can you imagine? I really can't. You know, it just, <laughs> you know, when I come home on a Friday night, you know, my go-to thing, if if it's just a bottle of wine and my wife and I sitting in front of the fire, is more like a Miles Davis vibe. Yeah, we're in reruns. That's kind of cool. Uh, Jason J was looking for Q4 earnings predictions blog. Kurt P actually sent us uh, an update correction there was a story that we had in episode 172 where we talked about the recent sale of Bishop's Corner Target anchored retail asset in West Hartford, Connecticut. It was reported that the project was purchased by Edens. Edens was the seller. First National Realty Partners was the buyer. So wanted to make sure that we got that out and uh, and thanked us for our continued coverage in podcasts. And I'll give a couple of shout outs before you go on, Martha. That brain freeze, by the way, about Eden's was mine. So uh, apologies on that front. I also got a reach out this week from Deborah down in Texas, who said for the first time she had seen palm scanning as a way of paying for things. I had never heard of that before. I think she said she was in Houston and she was checking out somewhere. All she had to do was put her palm down and that was it. She was uh, good to go through checkout, which I thought was extraordinarily Efficient or creepy? I'm still trying to get my arms around it. I've been trying to convince Haley Keene, our producer, to just go into the Amazon Go where all she has to put in is her uh, scanned QR code, but she's terrified. She's afraid she won't be able to get in or out, and I'm not sure she'll consider the Palm Reader uh, a reliable way to go. This week, uh, we had a bunch of Twitter noise. We appreciate that as always. Uh, Floor 3, Tripwire Pod is excellent. Silver Thread Cap uh, and Flaming Dragon. Charles L. also said that the Tripwire Podcast is good for CMBS happenings. So earlier we were talking about inflation, and I'm sure you've seen that groceries were one element that had a big increase in the last month. There's this thing called the Christmas cookie inflation index that I don't know if you guys have come across. Apparently, this Charles Marone has compared core baking ingredients over the last few years to kind of assess what a basket of groceries to make chocolate chip cookies would cost. And a basket that would have run you about $49 is going to be about $65 now. So in general, uh, the rate of making your holiday cookies is, is going to be a little bit pricier. I am a huge fan of the Christmas cookie. Uh, my wife and I throw a huge Christmas Eve every year, and uh, it is a real competition among several different people that show up for this for who has the best Christmas cookies. Fortunately, I am judge and jury and, and are forced to eat plentiful numbers of each one. And I'm looking forward to that again this year. And I know we have more podcasts between now and the end of the year, at least uh, one or two more, but 
wanted to take this moment to wish everybody really happy holidays, safe holidays. I, I know the last couple of years have been tough, first with COVID and then Omicron. I hope this year is just a wonderful get together for everybody who's out there listening and that uh, 2023 is safe, healthy, and prosperous. Thanks for listening. With that, we'll close. Thanks to our producer, Haley Keen. Join us next week as we look at what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question or a comment, send your email to podcast at trip.com and subscribe to the podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well. All right. 